I have to admit to you, I was a little nervous about doing the early morning session, uh, but uh, Matt told me that Hawaiians are an early rising people, so there was nothing to fear. Uh, that is not true where I am. The church that I pastor, I mentioned this last night in the Q&A, has a, um, um, it, well, in a 20-mile radius of our church, there's 120,000 college students, uh, which means a couple of things that are true about our church that are a little unique. One is, relatively speaking, we are not that wealthy of a church. Uh, college students bring a lot of things to our congregation. Money is not one of them. Um, when, when students first started to come to our church, it was like one week there were five that showed up, and the next week 500 showed up, uh, riding in probably two cars. Uh, and our weekly attendance basically tripled, and our average weekly giving went up $13.48. So um, we are, in fact, one of my favorite memories as a pastor is right after students started to come, a true story, in between two of our services, one of our ushers comes back into my little backstage area and he's got um, an offering bucket and in it is a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit from a college student <laughs> with a little note on it that said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto you. So that's how we roll at the Summit Church. We don't have a lot of money. The other thing is true is we don't do early morning services. We have a four o'clock service in the afternoon and some of our students um, eat breakfast and come there. Uh, so they would not do well at nine o'clock in the morning. Um, if there happens to be some of you there, one of the things we've uh, learned to teach at our church about this is that drowsiness whenever the Word of God is being taught is always a sign of demon possession. Um, so Let's do this this morning. If the person, look at them right now. Look to your right and your left. If they look like they're a little drowsy at any point when I am teaching, you have my permission to reach over and grab their forehead with your hand and as loud as you can yell, demons out! And I promise you, whatever your theology, the spirit of slumber will depart from that person immediately. So... That's how, we'll, that's how we'll do it. Um, if you've got your Bible, take it out if you would this morning and open it to uh, the book of Jonah, or if you're super cool, turn it on uh, and scroll down to the book of Jonah. Um, how many of you have an actual Bible, just out of curiosity? It's sort of like a real, that's amazing. Um, nobody at our church, everybody takes out their phone. Uh, you know, my, the, my pastor growing up used to say the sweetest sound he ever heard was the sound of the ruffling of the pages as people open the Bible. To, I never get to hear that, Never. I get to see the warm glow of God's Word on their faces. That's uh, about all I get. But whatever you got, the book of Jonah. Um, I'm going to keep you in the book of Jonah, but let me spend a few minutes here in 1 John. You don't need to turn there. Um, but the theme of this conference comes from the book of 1 John. Uh, it's called, you've seen it, This is Love. And so yesterday we talked about the love of God for us. Now we want to turn our attention to the effect of the love of God upon us. Uh, John, the apostle, is going to make two recurring points about love in the book of 1 John. And you just read 1 John and these things just, he keeps bringing these points back up. The first one is that love is the sign that we have met God. Quite simply, he's going to say it's impossible to really encounter something as massive as the love of God and stay the same. It's impossible to encounter that kind of love and not be transformed. I always think of it kind of like if I were to show up late here to speak this morning and, and uh, you know, I, about 20 minutes late after you guys are all sitting there, I kind of roll in and my, um, my shirt's untucked and it's, you know, my, my well, it's already untucked, but it's, uh, you know, my um, hair's all messed up and I'm sweaty and I'm like, y'all, I am so sorry um, that I am. Y'all say y'all here? I don't think you do. Okay, so y'all means you all. It's a Southern thing. It's, um, so uh, you people are, uh, uh, I, I'm so sorry um, but you wouldn't believe what happened to me on the way here. I was uh, driving, and um, my car had a flat tire, and whatever the interstate is out here, I, um, I pulled over on the side of the road and started to change the tire, and um, I took off one of the lug nuts, and I rolled out in the middle of the highway. So I went out to get it, and I reached down to pick it up. I look up, and here comes a tractor trailer going 75 miles an hour, um, just hits me square on, knocks me like 200 yards, um, runs over me, and then I guess the guy figured he hit something, so he backed up and ran over me again. And I got ran over twice, and man, that hurt. Um, and so I, you know, found the lug nut, and I, I came over, and I put the, you know, car, and I drove the rest of the way here, and that's why I'm late. At, at that point, you're going to look at me, and you're going to say, ah, you're lying. Because you, there's no possible way you could get hit by a force that strong and remain the same. Well, John's going to make the same point about the love of God. The love of God is this thing that when you encounter it, there's no possible way that you could encounter a force of that magnitude and stay the same. So the sign that you have actually met God is it creates a change in your heart where you begin to love others. And if that change not there, then, then you've never actually encountered the love of God. Paul's going to say it's the chief of all the virtues. Um, and now abideth these three, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is 
is love. Um, it's the, it, it, it is the cardinal virtue of, of the believer. He tells us in Galatians 5 that the Christian is supposed to be filled with the Spirit, which is going to produce love. He's supposed to overflow with love. Uh, by the way, a little Greek thing here. Um, in Greek, the word filled is pleroma, which literally means overflowing. In classical Greek, it's often used of pregnant women in the third trimester when they are overflowing with baby. You know, they say there's a kind of an unspoken rule among guys that when you're wondering whether it's okay to guess if a woman is pregnant, the rule is never, ever, 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 ever make that guess. And that is certainly a safe rule most of the times, but there's sometimes, right, even with that rule in place, there's sometimes you just know. I mean, she's just overflowing with baby, and you're like, there's no way you're just picking up a few extra pounds. That's not a beer belly. There's somebody else in there, and it's something's happening. Paul said you're supposed to be so full of the Holy Spirit that there's no guessing about there being somebody else in there. So the first point John makes is you can't encounter the love of God and say the same. The second point he makes is that if we want to grow in our love for God, then we're going to have to grow in our knowledge of the love of God. The only way to grow in your love for God or for others is to grow in your knowledge of the love of God for you. It is the love of God for you that produces love for God and for others in you. 1 John 4, 19, we love him because, because, because we're commanded to, because he's going to throw us in hell if we don't, because we came to the Gospel Coalition Conference and we learned that we ought to. No, we love him because he first loved us. He first loved us. It is the love of God for you that produces love for God in you. Martin Luther always talked about the dilemma of the great commandment. The dilemma of the great, what's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love others as you love yourself. He said the dilemma is God is commanding you to do something that by definition cannot be commanded. And that if you already do it, then you won't need to be commanded to do it. Right? Because you can't be commanded to love something you don't love. If you love something, you don't need to be commanded toward it. Like uh, you don't ever have to command me to uh, eat a steak, to kiss my wife, or to take a nap. I love those things. I'm just going to naturally do those things. He said the problem with the great commandments, the limitation of the great commandment is God is commanding us to do something that we are powerless to do. And if we do it, we don't need to be commanded to do it. Um, It is the love of God for you. We are changed not by exhortation. We're changed by revelation. God does not want people who simply learn to obey the rules. He's not just after obedience. He's after a new kind of obedience. Uh, Real quick, I, um, I dated this girl in high school that Um, On paper, we were perfect. My mom really liked her, and she was really encouraging the relationship, but it just, the chemistry wasn't there. I don't know how to say it. She was awesome. She way outclassed me, but I don't know. We just, just, there was no spark. (laughs) And so um, I started dating her around Christmas time, and we'd only been dating a few weeks, and I I wasn't sure what the future was. And so, um, you know, there was this dilemma because, you know, I was like, am I supposed to buy her a Christmas present? Because I was supposed to go see her like two days before Christmas. She lived an hour away from me. And I thought, if I show up at her house and she has a Christmas present for me and I don't have one for her, then I look like a total dirtbag. I mean, it's just there's terrible, right? But the other side of the dilemma is I don't want to drop 75 bucks on some girl that I got no future with. What's a guy to do? You see how hard it is for us? So I, um, on the way to see her, I stopped by at the mall and I ran in the store. I ran into a sporting goods store and there I saw it. It was the perfect gift. It was a neck warmer um, that had Adidas and great big letters on it that you wore when you went skiing. It was $7, and I thought, that's perfect. Because, you know, if she gets me a Christmas present, then I'll just give this to her. And if she doesn't give me a Christmas present, that puppy's mine, <laughs> you know? So I got it. I took it down to, I think it was Nordstrom's or some nice store, and I had him gift wrap it. Um, I, you know, put it in the back of my car. I drive the rest of the way to her house. I knock on the door. She opens the door, big old smile on her face. First thing out of her mouth is, I got you a Christmas present. And I thought, you genius, I got you a Christmas present too. So by the grace of God, I did not go get it. Um, she went to her Christmas tree and she pulled out a box and she brought it over to me and I started unwrapping this gift. And as I opened this gift, I pull out this, I, I'm not a clothing connoisseur, but I could tell this jacket was $100 plus. And literally I could feel my heart drop into my, my shoes. And I was like, <laughs> and she was like, well, where's my gift? And I was like, it's in the back of my car. I'm like, I left your gift at my house. I don't have your gift. I'm so sorry. Thinking I can go home, I can buy another one, I can mail it to her and everything's going to be fine. Um, well, she says, well, you know, my parents aren't here and, and so it's not good for we can't really stay around my house. I haven't seen your parents. Um, why don't we go to your house and I can meet your parents? And I thought, this is the judgment of God. And so, 
I drove home um, an hour <laughs> back to my house. I go in, I kind of leave her in the living room. And I said, just hang out here for a minute. So I go and I find my mom and I'm like, mom, do you have any like gift that you were going to give? I have a younger sister who's three years younger than me. Um, I, you have a, a gift you were going to give to her that I could give to this other girl? And my mom said, why? I said, don't, don't ask any questions. Just do what you're doing. Not. And so she said, well, yeah. So she goes, under the Christmas tree, gets out a gift that has my sister's name on it, takes this girl's, takes my sister's name on it, but puts this girl's name on it and hands it to me. And, and I go out there and I don't even know what it is. And I'm like, you know, and she's like, she's like, oh, thank you. She starts to open it up and she's like, what is it? And I was like, just open it, you know? So after she pulls out, and I'm as curious as she is, I'm like, uh, and so she pulls out this, it's like a sweater kind of girl thing and I, you know, whatever. It was an equivalent gift and I lived to see another day. Now, here's a question. If she, now, to my knowledge, I've never told that story where she's been in the audience. I don't know where she is now. Um, if she were to know the circumstances of that gift, do you think she would have been honored and flattered to receive it? Do you think she would have said, wow, what a guy. Look how you improvised and look how you saved your reputation. No. She would have been insulted and not taking it because nobody wants to be loved and served out of obligation. Why would we think that God is any different, that he is delighted and pleased when we do things because that's what good Christians do or that's what we ought to do? What God is after is not just obedience. He's after a new kind of obedience, an obedience that flows from desire. He's not after slaves who dutifully obey their masters. He's after sons who imitate their father, who love what their father loves and think like their father thinks, which is the point in one of the most famous books of the Bible, one of the most well-known the book of Jonah. In this book, God shows his people how he wants them to feel about the nations. But not only does he show them how he wants them to feel, he shows them how they can learn to feel that way. I mentioned last night in the question and answer time that this is something I've struggled with, just to be totally transparent with you, is developing real love for much of my life. I've done what I'm supposed to do. I've gone on the mission trips. I've given the money. I've prayed and I've fasted and done everything you're supposed to do. But inside, knowing that the love of my heart didn't always match the intensity of my actions. What I'm going to give you this morning is not the magic bullet. There is no magic bullet. But this is the roadmap that God gives to us in Scripture for how we are to develop His heart for the nations. You're going to see God lay open the people of God through the person of Jonah, and you're going to see what He says. We're just going to walk our whole way through this majestic little book, and then I'm going to draw some conclusions there at the end. Let's start in Jonah chapter 1. Most of you know the story. God calls a prophet named Jonah to go and preach salvation to the Ninevites, but Jonah, of course, doesn't want to do it. Now, we tend to shake our heads at Jonah, but we probably fail to take into account how the Israelites felt about the Ninevites and why what they felt was at least partially justified. The Ninevites were some of Israel's closest neighbors. They were known, even today, as one of the cruelest civilizations ever to exist. These were the people, by the way, who would end up taking the northern kingdom of Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, captive. So this is a lifelong enemy. A while back, some archaeologists uncovered an ancient Assyrian library. I'm going to give you here some actual things that Ninevite historians recorded their kings as saying. And whenever it refers to enemies, you can just think Israelites. This is what Ninevites did to Israelites. A mountain of heads, says one, I erected from the conquered king's city. Their youths and their maidens I burnt up in the flames. Am I showing them up here? Are we? There we go. Um, here's the second one. I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious, li precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. Their hands I cut off. I flayed, and then he, he actually lists a king out. His skin I spread upon the wall of the city. I pierced his and another conquered king, chin with my dagger. Through his jaw I passed a rope, put a dog chain on him, and kept him in a kennel in the city square. I tied them up and made them listen to the Frozen soundtrack on repeat for 40 days. One of those I made up. One of those I made up. You can see, I hope, why Jonah doesn't want to go plant a church in Nineveh. Jonah says, I don't want to see these people saved. I want to see them die. And he's at least partially justified. At least he feels like he is in that. So he gets on a ship and he goes the opposite way to Tarshish, verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. 
And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Really quick, you got to notice the irony. The prophet of God is downstairs asleep while the pagan sailors are up on the ship deck having a theological discussion. The author is trying to show us the downward progression of sin. Throughout the first chapter, the word down is going to be repeated over and over. Jonah had gone down to Joppa, down to Tarshish, down to the inner part of the ship, and down into sleep. Jonah is going down, 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 farther and farther from the presence of God. The word sleep used in the end there that gets translated deep sleep, it doesn't mean napping. It's, it's, it's a sleep that is almost unconscious. It's the sleep of spiritual death. What you've got to notice is that these are not things happening to the pagan sailors. These are things that are being presented about the prophet of God. And by the way, not a bad prophet, a good one. 2 Kings 14.25 tells us that Jonah was one of the Israel's premier prophets. He was the, the John Piper of his day. This chapter ends with them figuring out Jonah is to blame for the storm. And at Jonah's request, they throw him overboard. At which point the sea ceases from its raging and Jonah gets swallowed by a great fish. Chapter 2. While Jonah's in the belly of the fish, Jonah composes one of the most, most stirring prayers of repentance in Scripture. It's recorded there in chapter 2, starting verse 3. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And then this great little verse, those who pay regard to vain idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, which is, by the way, the key verse in Jonah. It's right smack dab in the middle, 24 verses before it, 23 after it. But the, but the, the, the verse presents an interpretive dilemma. And the, the, the dilemma that interpreters have wrestled with for years, including Jewish interpreters way back in the very first days, pre-Jesus. Pre the question is, whose idolatry is he talking about? The Jewish audience that read that would have first thought about Jonah talking about the pagans because they were the ones who were the idol worshipers. In chapter one, the pagan sailors had out their stupid little idols praying for deliverance. Or maybe they would have assumed it's the Ninevites to whom Jonah has been sent to prophesy. But there's also that word grace, Hebrew chesed, they forfeit the grace, the chesed that could be theirs. Well, see, in, the, in Hebrew, chesed is a word that refers to covenant love. And that's extended only to Israel. It was God's special love for his children. And Israel only thought about chesed in terms of themselves. Do you see the dilemma? Is he talking about pagans and Ninevites who are idolaters? Or is he talking about the children of Israel who have been partakers of chesed? Scholars tell us that two remarkable things happen right there in Jonah. Number one, Jonah acknowledges that he is guilty of the same idolatry as the nations around him. He loves his national identity, his security, his racial hatred more than he loves God. Number two, Jonah reveals God's desire to have a covenant relationship, chesed, with all nations, not just Israel. Well, Jonah gets tired of being a seafood entree, so he repents and God saves him. Chapter three. Jonah arose after he'd been regurgitated out of the fish, and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breath, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. This has got to be one of the worst sermons ever preached, <laughs> that somehow garnered the greatest response in history. It's only five words long in Hebrew. Yod arba'im ve'nineveh That was it. Five-word sermon. No illustrations, no action steps, no cool stories, no testimonies from great athletes, no altar call. <laughs> Jonah's heart's not even in it. I mean, he hates the Ninevites. Preaching class 101, don't hate people you're preaching to. What made it so powerful? We don't know. Some say it was Jonah's appearance. He'd been in the belly of the fish for three days, and the gastric juices would have... Would have, would, have, would have bleached him white so he was glowing like an angel. Certainly that would be a nice stage effect for preaching, but I don't think that explains it. Others point out that there had been a lot of unusual astronomical activity and natural disasters that had taken place around Nineveh at the time, and the people were primed for a word from God. 
Yeah, maybe that's true also, but I'm not sure either of those things fully account for what happens. All we know is that God's Spirit took these five words and made them so real and so urgent that the whole city repented. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. Verse 7 says they put sackcloth on the cows and they made them fast too. This is serious. By the way, what happens when cows don't eat? What sound do they make? They start to moo, right? Which sounded like this cry. It was just this whole city cry of repentance. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, he relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Here we see an Old Testament glimpse of what Jesus describes in Luke 15, where the father runs to receive his wayward son home. In chapter 4, Jonah is going to use the word rehem. Rehem. Want to learn a Hebrew word? Here's another one. Everybody say it. Rehem. You got you to you hit that. Okay, if, you didn't, if, if, if the person in front of you is not wiping stuff off the back of their head, you didn't say it right. Rehem. Rehem. Rehem is, means a father-like kind of love. He's talking about Nineveh. It's used throughout the Bible to talk about the compassion that a father has on a child that's hurt. I love my kids. One of the things that I know about a dad with their kids or a mom with their kids is when they hurt, you hurt. You don't just feel sorry for them. You want to take their pain. We have four kids. I told my wife the other day, after what, because my youngest is six, my oldest is 13, and I'm like, I don't think I'm ever going to be happy again. And she said, why not? I said, well, I feel like I can only be happy as my least happiest kid. And statistically speaking, one of them is always going to be upset for the next, you know, 40 years of my life. So I'm always going to be only as happy as my least happy kid. Therefore, I don't think I'll ever be happy again. Because as a parent, you take on the pain of your children. God is using this word here to talk about Nineveh. Nineveh, chapter 4. But God's mercy displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord. And he said, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Because I knew, I knew, I knew that you were a gracious God. Graham. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. At this point in the book, the irony is pretty thick. Jonah should probably have been grateful that God was so full of mercy. It's what saved him in the belly of the whale. But Jonah still doesn't get that, which leads to our first observation about how love for the nations grows in our hearts. Number one, love for the nations grows from an intimate awareness of our forgiveness. Love for the nations grows from an intimate awareness of our forgiveness. You see, Jonah saw his sin and the Ninevites' sin in two different categories. In chapter 4, we still see him rationalizing his sins. You see it in verse 2? God, this is why I disobeyed. Yeah, I disobeyed. I know it was disobedience, but it was a little bit justified. The Ninevites' sin in his eyes was unforgivable, but his sin, by contrast, which he acknowledges to be sin, is forgivable. But let me just ask you to consider, is there anything more wicked than directly saying no to God? The entire human race was plunged into darkness from one bite of a forbidden fruit. What was it that made the Garden of Eden, what was it that made the eating of that forbidden fruit so wicked? I mean, they didn't do a lot of, like they didn't rape people on the way to the tree or stomp on puppies or anything like that. It was What made it wicked was not the action in itself, it was the authority of the one that they flouted. Because sins get their wickedness not by the wickedness of the deed, but by the authority of the one that you do it against, right? I mean, does that make sense? If I get mad and punch a wall, I'm going to have to pay for the wall, but it's not that bad of a thing. If I get mad and kick a dog, well, most people would think I've done a genuinely bad thing. I get mad and kick the lady in the grocery store next to me, I'm going to go to jail. I strut into Buckingham Palace and I roundhouse the Queen of England and I'm going to It's going to be worse in jail. The little gods with the fuzzy hats and the sticks are going to come out and beat me because an action gathers its wickedness not just by what it is, but by the authority of the one that it rejects. What is more wicked than knowing what God wants and saying no? In the book of Genesis, Lot's wife is going to be turned into a pillar of salt for one forbidden glance. One glance. She's turned into a pillar of salt. In Numbers chapter 15, we've got The story of a man who, right after the law is given, picks up sticks on the Sabbath day. Picks up sticks. How how evil is picking up sticks? They bring them to God. 
God, what do you want to do with this guy? And what's God's answer, Numbers 15? Stone him. Stone him because he knew what I wanted and he flouted my authority. The wickedness was not in the action. It was in the authority of the one that he rejected. There is nothing more wicked than saying no to God. I've heard it said that you're never farther from God when you're close to him and you say no. Rebellion, God is going to explain through the prophet Samuel, is like witchcraft. Would you think about that for a minute? When you know what God wants and you choose the opposite way, God says, in my mind, that's just like witchcraft. I mean, what if I told you that right before I walked on stage, I was back there doing a seance, sacrificed a goat and praying to Satan. God says, that's what it is when you know what I want and you say no. And is there a single person in this room that is not guilty of that very thing? Jonah and the people of God, the religious people, are as guilty of that before God as the Ninevites are, if not more so. Because they'd been given more light and they're the ones who had rejected the authority of God. Maybe God has restrained Jonah from tasting the full fruit of sin's corrupting power. But Jonah is guilty of the same core sin as they are. The most profound point in this story is that Jonah, who represents God's people, is in God's eyes actually Nineveh. That's the core, that's the interpretive key of the whole book. We often talk about God's choice to never stop loving us and forgiveness of us, like the unconditional love we have for our kids. But y'all, here's where that analogy breaks down. Even when my kids lie, they're still my kids. Paul said in Romans, however, that our sin and our rebellion made us God's enemies. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Not like his enemies or not, oh, his wayward, disobedient children. We were his enemies. We were children of wrath. God's choice to keep loving us and extend forgiveness to us is less like me forgiving my daughter for lying and more like me choosing to love and adopt into my family an ISIS member who beheads my daughter. That's what God's forgiveness is in the book of Romans. There's no greater wonder in the universe than the love of God for us, which is why Peter says the angels marvel. Think about what the angels, think about what it takes to make an angel marvel. I mean, they were there when God split the Red Sea. They were there when Jesus raised from the dead. They were there at least for part of the creation. And yet when they look and they see what God does for sinful people like us, they marvel. They can't get their minds around it. They long to look into these things. In vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. The image there is of radar. I'm trying to figure out where the bottom of this thing is, but no matter what kind of radar I send out, it's too deep. I never can find the bottom. Tis mercy all, let earth adore. Let angel minds inquire no more. Some things just cannot be explained. I simply stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, and I wonder how he could Love me, a sinner, condemned unclean. It's only when we see ourselves this way that our hearts actually begin to change. You see, those who don't have an awareness of what they've been forgiven of don't really love. Those who are forgiven much love much. That's what Jesus said. He probably explained this best in a parable that is one of the most convicting in my personal, um, I guess one of my favorite parables he told. us the story of the man forgiven 10,000 talents. You know that one? Um, you know, here you got a guy who is another guy, 10,000 talents. By the way, 10,000 was the highest number they count to in Greek. So when you said 10,000, it was like saying infinity. So one guy owes another guy an infinity of talents. And a talent was what? A month's wages? So we're talking a guy who has so much money he owes this guy, he can never pay, never pay it off. That's key to understand. The day comes for his debt to be due. So he shows up in debtor's court to face this guy. Now, in those days, if you couldn't pay off your debt, then you went into slavery to that guy. And if you couldn't work it off in your lifetime, then your kids became his slaves and your whole family would be enslaved until they paid it off. So this guy is looking at his whole family being sold into slavery. So he drops down on his knees and he begins to weep. And he says, sir, please, please don't, don't send me to prison. Don't send my kids to prison. Give me one more week, just one more week. And I promise you, I'll pay back every penny. Now, at this point, as Jesus is telling the story, you can imagine everybody that's in the courtroom kind of shaking their heads and thinking this is ridiculous. If he has another week, he's not going to be able to pay it back. If he had 100 weeks, he can't pay it back. It's an infinity of money. The other thing that's ridiculous is people that loan other people that amounts of money don't get to be in the position they're in by being a softy or a pushover, right? We don't call them loan puppies or loan bunnies. You call them loan sharks. That's right, because if you don't pay the money, they send some guy named Bruno to your house with a baseball bat and he breaks your shins. So everybody's kind of watching this ridiculous, awkward display, and 
They're kind of staring at the ground when all of a sudden this loan shark does the absolutely unexpected. His lip starts to quiver. He gets the tear in his eye. He feels an emotion in Greek that Jesus calls, another great word, splagma. Say say it. It feels good when you say it. Splagma. Say it. It's onomatopoeia. That's what they say in Greek. You know onomatopoeia where a word sounds like what it is? It it, it means gut level compassion. It means it comes from right here. Splagma. That's what it's supposed to sound like. It just comes up out. It's it's, it's a compassion that started right here. He, He feels splagma. And all of a sudden, he gets emotional, and he looks at this guy, and he says, no, 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 no. Stand up. You do not get another week to pay me back. Because as of this moment right now, you don't owe me another dime. Nobody in the courtroom can believe it. Nobody. They're just stunned, at least of all this guy. And he's like, are are you serious? And the guy says, yes. As of right now, your debt has been canceled. This guy stands up, and for the first time, and as long as he can remember, he feels as light as air. The weight of the world is lifted off of his shoulders, and he walks in this kind of daze out of the courtroom, and there across the street is a friend of his who owes him a dollar fifty because for a Mountain Dew he bought the week before. He's like, hey, where's my dollar fifty? Guy says, man, I'm sorry. It's been a rough week. I, I didn't, you know, I'm a little behind. I don't have your dollar fifty. I'll give it to you next week. No. If you don't have my dollar fifty, I'm throwing you in prison. And he grabs him, Jesus says, by the throat. That's serious. And hauls him off to debtor's prison and throws him in prison. Now, can't you imagine that as Jesus is telling this story that at this point everybody kind of shakes their head and rolls their eyes and says, that's absurd. Nobody that just got forgiven an infinity of money is going to hold somebody else accountable for dollar or 50. And Jesus said, exactly. Which means that if you're not naturally forgiving and naturally generous, it's probably because you've never actually experienced the grace of God. You see, if you have a problem being forgiving to your spouse, if you have a problem holding on to resentment, if you're not a naturally generous person, if you're not naturally on mission, it's not that you just need to do better, it's that you probably need to go back and have a real long good look at the grace that God has shown to you. Because the grace of God for you, the love of God for God for you is what produces love for God in you. I'll just tell you real quick, this is one of the things that saved my marriage. Because my wife and I, both of us, our first years of marriage just did not forgive each other. I'm disappointed in you because you didn't do this like I thought you were going to do it. And you're disappointed in me with this. And a good friend of mine who just counseled us with Scripture said, the problem with both of you is that you see yourself as first sinned against and only secondly sinner. The Bible wants you to think of yourselves as first sinner and only secondly sinned against. And when you go to God and realize you were forgiven of the 10,000 talents, then suddenly forgiving your wife for disappointing you isn't going to seem like a big deal. Your problem with forgiveness this way starts with a lack of perception of forgiveness that's come from God to you. Jonah, like many religious people, has learned to submit to God out of fear of what God is going to do to him. But he's never become a son of God who resembles God in how he loves. And that experience starts with a deep experience of grace. Let's keep reading verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it, under in the shade, till he could see what would become of the city. Jonah's still hoping that repentance wears off and that God's going to go Old Testament on them and he's going to get a front row to see it. Verse 6, and the Lord God appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah. You know that after being in the belly, he's going to have no hair. He's bald, sunburned, didn't have sunscreen, so that it became faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Like God's doing a little counseling with him. And Jonah, you just, right, can't you hear it? Yes, I have a right to be angry. Verse 10, the Lord said, you pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah, you care about a plant? You care about a weed that sprung up overnight and is gone just as quickly. But Jonah, Nineveh is filled with people, people just like you. 
In fact, 120,000 who don't know their right hand from their left, most scholars say that refers to children. Jonah, how can you look at such a massive destruction of life, of sinful people, yes, but people just like you, and even children who are as precious to me as your children are to you, how can you look at that with no emotion? I think that last line is thrown in there for comic relief. God's like, could you at least care about the cows? I'm the cows. For Jonah, the Ninevites were not people. For Jonah, they were a concept. The Hebrews had a term for the unbelieving nations, goyim, gohim. I think that's why God points out the 120,000 children because he sees the lost not as a concept. He sees them as individuals. Number two, love feels its shared humanity with the lost. Love feels its shared humanity with the lost. Most of us don't think of the lost as individuals, do we? We think of the loss as a statistic to be dealt with. Joseph Stalin, who I typically don't reference during sermons, but Joseph Stalin once said, the death of one is a tragedy. The death of a million is just a statistic. What he meant is when you look at the death of one, when you look into the face of one, you see somebody like you, like one of your kids, and it becomes a tragedy. But when you hear about a million people dying, we reduce it to a demographic trend. But everyone that perishes is an individual. There are 2.2 billion individuals in our world who have yet to have any access to the gospel and be warned about Jesus. 2.2 billion individuals just like you, made in the image of God just like you, who experience pain and sadness and fear just like you, who love their children just like you love yours, who know what it's like to be afraid, who know what it's like to be hungry, to feel hopeless and alone, and for whom going to hell is every bit the tragedy that it would be for you. Last conversation that I had when I left Southeast Asia as a missionary, I lived there among Muslims, was with a God by the name of Ishmael. Ishmael was an Islamic youth pastor. He'd befriended me right when I first got to Southeast Asia, and he'd um, just walk with me every step of the way. And I told him about Jesus a dozen times. And every single time, he'd look at me, and he'd say exactly the same thing. He'd say, J.D., my friend, you are a great man of faith, and I respect you. But you are a Christian because you were born in a Christian country. You are a Christian because your parents are Christian. I am born to Muslim parents, and I live in a Muslim country. That's why I am a Muslim. You are a Christian. I am a Muslim. That is we get what we get from our people. That is how it has always been and how it will always be. Every time, that's how the conversation ended. A week before I left to come home, I sat him down one last time, and I just, I said, Ishmael, man, I love you. I love you, and you've become one of my best friends here. And I've got to tell you, this is what Jesus said. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Ishmael listened very politely like a friend would, and he, he smiled at me and said exactly the same thing. J.D., you are a great man of faith, but you are a Christian because your parents are Christian. I'm a Muslim because I was born in Muslims, and that's how it's been and how it will always be. He left, and I didn't think I'd ever see him again. The day that I was leaving, he showed back up at my house. Like literally an hour before the taxi was going to take me to the airport. And I could tell something was on his mind. And I said, Ishmael, what's wrong? He said, can we talk? I said, yeah. He said, after we had that conversation a week ago, he said, the words, I, I knew you'd told it to me a dozen times, but these words were different. It was like, a, and he used the word kabratan, which means in their language, it means heaviness. It was like a heaviness that just pierced down in my soul. I couldn't quit thinking about it. He said, that night when I went to sleep, he said, I had this dream. He goes, in my dream, he said, I was standing and right in front of my feet, this road kind of rose up out of the ground and went all the way up to heaven. It was the Jalan Urus, which in their language means the straight and narrow way to heaven. He had the Jalan Urus stretched up to heaven. And then his eyes got kind of big and he said, and you were on it. And he was so surprised. I was kind of offended. I was like, that's what I've been trying to tell you, man. So um, he said, you walked all the way up to heaven's gates, and there was these huge locked brass doors, and I thought that's where your journey ends. He said, but when I thought it was all over, he said, suddenly somebody inside knew your name. They called you by name. And suddenly those doors opened, and you went in, and those doors closed, and he said, my heart broke because I wanted to go with you. He said, and then when I thought my dream was over, he said, the doors opened again, and you came back out, and you walked all the way down the Jalan Udus, and you came down to where I was here, and you grabbed my hand, and you pulled me onto your back, and you carried me up into heaven with you. Then his exact words were this. He says, at first, I think this was dream that come from eating strange fish. <laughs> he said, but I've had many of those kinds of dreams. He said, this is not that dream. This was dream 
this was dream from Allah. He said, can you tell me what my dream means? Now, y'all, I'm raised in a traditional Baptist home. Right? We don't do visions, dreams. But I knew exactly what to say in this moment. I was like, bro, you are so in luck. Dream interpretation is my spiritual gift. And I, for the next hour, I unfolded to him what the gospel was. And I would love, I would love, I would love to be able to tell you that he put his faith in Jesus Christ, but he did not. It was just still too much for him. It was still too much for him. I, I've corresponded with him a few times. I've actually lost contact with him. His family, all of them died in the tsunami in 2004. He was the only one that survived. One day, by God's grace, I'm going to see him come to faith in Christ. But he, um, what he said next is something that I will never, ever be able to forget. Because he said, he said, I know my dream is from God. And I know that what it means is that you were sent here by God to show me the way of salvation. He said, but J.D., my friend, today you go home. And you are the only Christian I have ever known. Who is going to explain to me the way of salvation? When I talk about 2.2 billion people in the world that have never heard the name of Jesus, I don't think of it as a statistic. I think of it as him. And I think of people like him made in the image of God. And sometimes I forget that. And so this summer, my, our elders of our church offered me a, let's just call it a sabbatical. And so my wife and I said, you know what we really want is we want to go back to some of these places where our church planners live overseas and we just want to live because they've become a concept to me again and I need to see faces. And I met Unda, a girl there who was sold into sex slave trafficking. And so now when I talk about the sex slave problem, I'm not thinking about statistics. I'm thinking about her. Love feels a shared humanity with the lost and knows that our experience of grace, it requires something of us. Paul in Romans chapter 1 is going to say that he's under obligation to the Greeks and the Jews, people who don't know about Jesus. The word he uses is debtor. It's a strange word. What did, what did he owe them? I mean, they, he'd never, they'd never done anything for him. Why, why does he owe them? The reason he feels under obligation is not because he feels like he owes them. It's because he got an experience of grace and he realizes that he was no more worthy of grace than they would be. He realizes there was not a reason why God chose him. That was about him. But he realizes that with the, oblig- with the, 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 the privilege of hearing the gospel comes the responsibility to take it to those who have never heard. Here's the thing, when you're under a God obligation, when you're a debtor, the word that Paul uses, your life changes. If you owe $100,000 to a credit card company, your life changes. When you get a bonus at work, you don't keep all that bonus, it goes to the credit card company. They'll start to garnish your wages. You're, I'm not free anymore. That's what Paul said, I'm not free to pursue my dreams. I'm not free to do what I want to do. I'm not free to live where I want to live and, and entertain the hobbies I want to entertain. I'm under obligation. Because he showed me grace, and I'm no more worthy of it than anybody else. I used to feel like the gospel wasn't fair. Like, why does God, why does, it just, it seemed like, reading the book of Romans when I was a junior in college, I, was, I read through it seven times that year. And I remember when it finally just kind of settled in on me that God had said every person, the only way that they're ever going to hear is for one of us to go and preach, and that those who had not heard the name of Jesus were still responsible to the law of God that he put in their hearts, and the law condemned everybody. And I remember when I finally accepted the fact that there were these 2.2 billion people in the world that had never heard about Jesus, suddenly everything in my life began to look different. Up until that point, I'd kind of waited on the call of God like it was some strange burning bush experience, or like, you know, I always call it the Cheerios method of hearing from God. You look into your Cheerios and expect them to spell out, you know, Afghanistan, you know, it never happened. Y'all, I stared into my Cheerios for years, and all they ever spelled out was ooh over and over again. That was it. But suddenly, I, I'm looking into the face of 2.2 billion people, and I'm realizing, I'll tell you what came to my mind. It's not a great analogy, but it's almost like you're walking through downtown, and you're by a railroad track, and you see a kid laying on the railroad track who's unable to move. He's handicapped. And what do you do? Right? You don't stop at that point and get down on your knees and say, Lord, what is your, your will? Would you put a peace in my heart? No, you don't say that. That's stupid. Right? You know what God's will is. Save the kid. We talk about, I need to find God's will for my life. It's not lost. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We always tell our college students and others in our church, the question is no longer if you're called. The question is only where and how. The question is not if you're called. The call to be involved in the Great Commission was included in the call to follow Jesus. 
follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. Those two things go together. And we got a lot of people sitting around waiting on a voice when what they've already got is a verse. And the verse says, yeah, you're not all called to do what I do, and you may not be called to go live overseas, but you're called to figure out what gifts God has given you and figure out how it can be used to take the gospel to people that have never heard it. That's the role that God has given to each of us. We may not have a voice. You've got a very clear verse. We teach all of our people, here's what it means to follow Jesus. God made you good at something. It, wasn't all pre- it didn't make you all preachers. It didn't make you writers, singers. Well, whatever you're good at, do it well to the glory of God, and then do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Whatever you're good at, do it well to the glory of God, somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Every year out of our church, we send about 150 people out to go plant churches. And what we do, we we interview college students when they graduate. And you can apply this to any age, but I'll just use them. We interview them when we graduate and we say, okay, you got to get a job somewhere. Why not get a job in a place where God's doing something strategic? Why not let the largest factor in where you choose to pursue your career, why not make that, why not make that the kingdom of God? You get family, money, where you've always wanted to live. Why not say, God, I'm going to seek first you and your kingdom, and then I'm going to let everything else be added to me after that. What it means for you to follow Jesus is for you to perceive what he's made you good at and then use it in the mission of God. Throughout the book of Jonah, the author is going to repeat the word great. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a great tempest on the sea. The men were greatly afraid. The Lord appointed a great fish. God's mercy displeased Jonah greatly. Then he was greatly glad because of the plan. The whole point of that repetition is to underscore the greatness of God's mission to save the Ninevites that he is on. Jonah's hatred of the Ninevites is great, in some ways justified, but the value of the human soul to God is greater. The question Jonah asked, have you felt the weightiness of that mission? Do you sense that it's greater than whatever plant brings you pleasure? Oh, Jonah's poor plant, it's so inconsequential. What do you think would be our plants today? It's anything that overshadows the value of a soul in our hearts. That's what a plant is. Where you wanted to live, what you wanted your life to look like, how you want to retire. John Piper in the book Desiring God tells that famous story about the couple who always wanted to go visit beaches and pick up seashells. And he's like, really? That's how you want to spend the last 15 years before you see King Jesus? You want to look him in the face and say, here, Lord, here are my seashells. Yeah, this is what you wanted to do, but you're under obligation, which means that you ought to look at that retirement chapter and say, where can I be most strategically used for the kingdom of God? Maybe it's on a new church plant. Maybe it's in a place like Hawaii. Maybe it's in Afghanistan, but whatever it is, I'm going to make it count. What seems like the book of Jonah should continue, doesn't we ought to see Jonah wrestle with these questions, but verse 11 is the last verse. You see it? How does he respond? We don't know. And that's because the book is a question to Israel and a question to us. Do we care? Do we care for them more than we love our creature comforts, our stuff, our plans for the future, our plants? Jesus picks up the story of Jonah and does one more thing with it, which is essential to developing the heart of love that God wants us to have. I'll share it with you really, really quickly, and then I'll be done. But I have to do this to tie it up. Matthew 12, 40. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You see, all this was a setup to actually show us something even deeper about Jonah. Jonah was cast out into the sea because of his disobedience, and the waters became calm. One greater than Jonah came who was cast into the wave of God's wrath, and they became calm. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. A greater than Jonah was in the belly of the earth, death itself for three days. From the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed, I'm driven away from your sight. The water closed in on me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeps were wrapped around my head. On the cross, a greater than Jonah went down into the deep and had the weeds of sin wrapped around his head. The bars of death closed around him, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everything that Jonah the prophet did wrong, Jesus the Messiah did right. Jonah ran from his enemies. Jesus ran toward him. Jonah thought only about self-protection. Jesus gave himself up in self-sacrifice. In Jonah's final prayer, he cries out for vengeance on his enemies. Jesus on the Christ, Jesus on the cross cried out for forgiveness of his. Make no mistake, if you're looking to find yourself in this story, you're not found in the person of Jonah. You're found in Nineveh. We were the unforgivable upon whom the angels looked with wonder and said, them? Why them? Why would you love them? It doesn't make any sense, which leads me to number three, and I'll just say this really quickly. Love for others grows in response to Jesus' great love for us. We love because he first loved us. Love for God and for the nations grows in us. 
as we stand amazed at the great love of the Father for us. Have you seen Jesus this way until it overwhelms you to the point that all your relationships are different? How you treat your spouse, what you do with your money, what you do to those you hate, to those who've hurt you, to those you consider your societal enemies. When you see ISIS or those in our country who are opposed to biblical morality, is it anger or compassion that dominates your heart? You know, communities are changed not just by people who believe what is right, but by people who get up every day and ache for the lost, who like Paul, in fact, let me show you Romans 9. I was going to skip this, but let me just show it to you. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Real quick, just a little exegetical thing. Paul never does that. He never hedges his statement to say, hey, this time I'm actually telling the truth. Paul's normal demeanor was, I'm an apostle, you shut up. Okay? But Paul here hedges his statement three times because he knows that what he's about to say is so unbelievable, you're not going to believe it. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. I would go to hell if it meant that they could be saved. Is that the anguish you feel in your heart for people? Is there anybody that you would say, yep, I'd go to hell for them? Do you even weep? I mean, hey, you say you're faithful to Paul's doctrine. That's what the Gospel Coalition's about, right? Are you faithful to Paul's spirit? The world has changed not by people who believe right things, but by people who believe right things, and then they become the kind of people that do with their things what Jesus did with them, who say like John Knox said about Scotland, God, give me Scotland or I die. Or say like Paul, I'd go to hell if it meant my nation would be saved. Do you love the loss like that to the point that all your plants seem worthless compared to the value of seeing the soul saved? If you don't, if you don't, if you don't find yourself giving away your first and your best, just ask yourself, where would you be without Jesus? Because the answer is that is exactly where the 2.2 billion people in the world are without you. Doesn't matter if Jesus dies a thousand times if nobody ever hears about him. That's what Martin Luther said. Gospel's only good news if it gets there in time, Carl F. H. Henry. And with the hearing of the gospel, with the great grace of the gospel, comes the obligation. Have you responded to it? Why don't you, why don't you bow your heads? Let me pray. God, I do stand amazed. And even talking through this, I just start to think about plants in my life that are absolutely worthless. God, would you marshal every, everything that I have for the purposes of the Great Commission so that I don't leave anything on the table? I pray, God, that you would move in my spirit. Give me gifts. Give me opportunity. Multiply my ability to be able to reach people. God, I pray that for me, and I pray it by extension for those that are sitting here. I pray that, God, these believers in Hawaii would suddenly become obsessed with the Great Commission the way that Paul was, where they would find themselves fasting and praying and laboring and giving and sacrificing because they would go to hell if they could, if it meant that Hawaii could be saved. God, I pray for that. I pray for that spirit of the Lord Jesus to move in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.